Thank you guys for being here this morning. It's a real honor. For those of you who may be visiting, we've been working our way through the Bible with the main church as well. Pastor David preached this morning out of Acts, and we're kind of aligned with each other. We're doing in our classes the supporting readings that have been assigned to go with the core reading that's been uh, uh, used as, as basically as the pulpit version, uh, pulpit topic during the last year since January 1st. So here we are in this class. What we've done is for the last week or two, we've been reading Paul's letters to the Corinthians because we've been at the place in Acts where Paul likely wrote those letters. And so it's been a marvelous thing for us to do. This week, what we do is we get to the finish line of 2 Corinthians. And if you've been reading along during the week, you finished that letter. So we'll discuss that a little bit. And then we'll go on to the contextual readings after that, which includes what Pastor Fleming covered this morning. So if you're with me, let's start. And as we finish 2 Corinthians as a letter, one of the things that strikes me uh, um, strikes me deeply as I read that, and maybe it's because of the nature of our church, maybe it's because of the nature of our small group, uh, uh, which is what this life group is is targeted to be. It it really strikes me the way Paul has an intimate concern for each person's choices. Now, I've put those up for us to see because the intimate concern, each word's chosen very deliberately. Paul is not only concerned with what the people choose, but he has an intimacy level with it that I find rather stunning. In addition to that, his concern is not over simply what's going on in the world, but more specifically, what's going on with the choices of the people. So if you've got a Bible and care to turn to 2 Corinthians, we'll go to chapter 12. And if we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we've got, uh, um, I'm going to start, our reading started with verse 11, but I'm going to really start with verse 19. Let's see if we can get it as big as we can and still keep some room. Okay, so here's where we are in the, the context of 2 Corinthians. You'll recall that Paul's been defending himself. Paul started writing this letter from Ephesus. Ephesus is over on, was at the time a shore city on Turkey's coast. Now it's been silted in, so it's inland a little bit. The ruins of Ephesus are. But at the time of Paul, it was a port city. And so Paul's been in Ephesus and he's been writing to Corinth, which is over in the isthmus that sticks out at the bottom of Greece. Corinth was also a harbor town, both from the east and from the west, because it had the harbor, it it was truly on this little mile and a half isthmus uh, neck, the neck of the isthmus, so it had harbors on both sides. And as a result, it it was a town of great commerce, and it was a town... Where, where there was a lot of interchange with people. In fact, the easiest way to get from Rome over to Ephesus was to go through Corinth. You would come down the Appian Way, down the boot of Rome, and you would take a boat over to the western harbor of Corinth. The boat would be pulled out of the water, pulled across these rolling timbers, and put back in the harbor on the eastern side. That was safer 
and that was quicker than trying to sail all the way around Greece and come back up. So you've got a harbor town that is a nexus for communication. It's not surprising that Paul's communicating back and forth with the Corinthians so much, not only directly himself, but he's hearing things from other people. So as these other teachers have come into Corinth, they've come into Corinth after Paul, teaching their own gospel, which was a contrary gospel to what Paul was teaching. And so Paul's having to address not only the false teaching, but the way the false teachers have been denigrating Paul or putting Paul down. And they would do it uh, uh, in a number of ways. They wouldn't simply attack Paul's arguments. Instead, they would argue, as we discussed last week, ad hominem against the person. So they'd say, you're going to believe Paul. Paul's uh, an amateur. He doesn't even get paid for what he does. You've got to pay us for our message. You get what you pay for. You pay us dearly, we give you a dear message. You pay Paul zip, he gives you zip. They said, you know, look at Paul. He's scrawny. He's weak. We're six foot two, eyes of blue. It, 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 you know, God's going to bless physically those people he wants to deliver his message. The message of God is powerful. Paul's a weakling. Do you really think God would give a powerful message to a weakling? Paul's a wimp. Do you really think God's might and power is going to be proclaimed by a wimp? And that's what Paul's been battling against. So Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he says, I'm addressing all of that with you and I'm going to come visit you a third time. And I'm going to be really interested to see what I find when I come there. Are you going to be living in the midst of God's holiness and the message I've taught you? Or are you going to be living in the midst of this false teaching from the super apostles, as he calls them? He also calls them false teachers. So within that vein, we hit chapter 12, verse 19, where Paul begins by saying, Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Have you been thinking that, that for me this is about me, Paul? It's in the sight of God we've been speaking in Christ and it's all for your upbuilding, beloved. I admire Paul. I admire Paul for not just cutting and running. I admire Paul for not just saying, hey, I gave it to you. If you don't want it, serve you right to suffer, baby, and leave. He says, I'm not doing this because I have this overwhelming desire to defend my name. The only reason I'm going to all of this trouble, the only reason I'm working myself to death, is because I genuinely care about you. I have a concern, a genuine, God-felt, beloved concern for you. This, I've been speaking in Christ all for your upbuilding, beloved, for I fear perhaps 
when I come, I may find you not as I wish. And by the way, you may find me not as you wish. Perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity sexual immorality, and sensuality they have practiced. Now, this is interesting to me. This is the intimate concern. You can look at the people around you. And how many of them would you be able to say, we'll leave out the sexual immorality, we'll leave out sensuality, Just go to the easier ones. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. Can you look around you and readily say, you know, I need to be praying for him. He's got some serious problems with jealousy, conceit. I need to be praying for her. She's got some serious problems with anger. You know, he's he's a gossip. You know, she's conceited. I don't, and, and, and don't understand, I'm not sitting here saying we need to become a church of judgers. I'm not sitting here saying, well, we should be seeking out this stuff. And we've got to be careful because if we do, you know, I can't tell you how many people gossip under the name of prayer requests. <laughs> you know, you don't need to tell anybody this, but you need to be praying for so-and-so. They've got a serious problem with gossip. So it's kind of dicey to talk about. And I'm not here pointing fingers at any of us. I'm just amazed that Paul has such an intimate concern that he'd even know that. You know, we're going to have 650 people in here today. And I don't have a clue what most of y'all are struggling with. Oh, I mean, you're human. So I can go through the litany of of human struggles. But in terms of your personal struggles and where you are, that's why when I prepare these classes, I do it with a couple of things in mind. Really, there are three things. Number one, I look at myself, my life, what I struggle with today, what I've struggled with before. Number two, I look at the people who are close to me that I do have an intimate relationship with. And try and identify the things that that would speak to them that they struggle with. And then number three, I just look at the general human condition. And figure somewhere in the midst of all of that, hopefully, through the Lord's grace, we're able to discuss things that help us all grow before the Lord. And if I'm missing what you've got, if you've got some unusual spiritual fungus I hadn't picked up on, you just need to email me. I'll try and cover it next Sunday. But, you know, I figure generally I'm going to hit pretty good because I got most of the funguses myself. So 
So, but Paul's got this intimate concern because this church, you see it in the last verse of, of chapter 13, the very last verse of the letter, where he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. By the way, that's an often underused verse to talk about the Trinity. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship. That word fellowship in the Greek, it's the Greek word koinonio. Koinonia, excuse me, I just changed the gender of it. Um, K-O-I-N, long O-N-I-A. Whoa, that did you no good. Koinonia. And in English, we would write it koinonia. Koinonia. You'll even hear that used for church names sometimes. It means a commonness. It means a sharing. Paul will use it when he's writing about uh, 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 fellowship. Uh, it can be translated fellowship, as it is here. Paul uses it in Romans 15, verse 26. Look at this. Romans 15, 26, Paul says, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Pleased to make some contribution, some koinonia. They're sharing with the poor. It's used in passages, Paul's already used it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 16. Gives you another idea of some of the flavor of this word. So we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. It's this same idea. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Don't be, look at this, this is interesting. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship, and here it's koinonia, but it means the same thing as partnership. What fellowship has light with darkness? What commonness? What does it have in common? How does it contribute? How does light contribute to darkness? where, Where is the participation there. And that's what he's talking about. The church is one that's participating together. And so this is, this is an intimate concern. It's one reason we do have connection groups. It's one reason if you're not connected to a small group of believers that can speak into your life and that can love you and that can know what you're struggling with in a way that allows you to minister to each other, you're missing out on a level of koinonia, of fellowship, of commonness within the church. And it's something worth saying, okay, I'm going to try and change that. We have one of our children, our daughter Gracie and her husband, uh, JT, they live in Miami. And Gracie called me this week and she said, Dad, I'm so excited. And I said, 
you got to understand, with Gracie, she's always so excited. So that could just mean she went to get the mail, okay? So I said, I said, really? She says, oh, it's just, I'm just so excited. I said, why? She said, well, we met another couple at church that's our age, and they're coming over for dinner. And this could be the start of a small group. I said, well, I'm so excited. And and I followed up with her afterwards, and, and they had a great time, and I think tonight they're going to play putt-putt. It's just establishing levels of intimacy that are important to our growth spiritually, if that makes any sense. So I'm impressed with Paul's level of concern, but I'm also impressed with the way he talks about each person's choices. Because Paul says, you got a choice. You know, when I come, I'm going to see how you're living because I've got a responsibility. He says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge, and, and think foreign courtrooms, must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That was Jewish law. It was also law of many other places. You could not establish the guilt or innocence of someone without at least two witnesses, maybe three. So Paul says, I'm coming a third time. That's going to make this like my third witness. I warned those who sinned before and all the others. And I'm warning them right now. Ahead of time in writing while I'm absent. As I did when present on my second visit. If I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof, and Paul again is hearkening back to them to the Corinthians, challenging Paul's authority because Paul's a weakling. Paul's an amateur. Paul's not good enough preacher to get paid for it. Has to work to support himself. He says, if I come again, you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Christ is not weak in dealing with you. Christ is powerful among you. But look what he says. Paul's making a a strong allegory, not allegory, illustration, parallel to what's going on here. Christ was crucified in weakness. The very Jesus you worship showed weakness in being crucified. Took a couple of Roman soldiers to conquer Jesus. Took the kiss of Judas to bring him down. Christ showed weakness. He was weak in crucifixion. He was weak when crucified. But he lives by the power of God. If the crucifixion of Jesus is it, then Jesus is a weak person, was weak savior, had some really neat things to teach that lead to death. If you take it and put it into the ocean's terms, Jesus was a little fish that got gobbled up by other fish. And he may have been a really good swimmer, but it didn't serve him in the end. But Paul's saying, this Jesus who was weak as crucified, name me someone else resurrected from the dead after three days. You know, I I love the chance to talk about the book. And I've been getting these chances to talk about the book. Which, by the way, 
thank y'all. Many of y'all have been getting copies and giving them away. It's just, I got notice, it's in its third printing right now already, which, which means they have severely underestimated how many copies mom would buy. Um, but I was talking uh, uh, about it on a, on a radio show recently. And they said, okay, well, the resurrection, as a lawyer, how do you look at the resurrection? And I said, well, it's simple. As a lawyer, I live in a courtroom where what you do is you put things in the scales and you weigh them. What's more likely than not? Put all the evidence for on one side and all the evidence against in the other. Here's the evidence for. Boom, 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 boom. The evidence against is really only one thing. It's weighty. But it's only one thing. You know what it is? That doesn't happen to people. I mean, it just doesn't happen to people. But from my perspective, that same evidence belongs on my side of the scales for the resurrection. Because it doesn't happen to people. This is the hand of God. This is the power of God. I don't know that I've ever met anyone else. Oh, no. I have never met anyone else with the power to resurrect someone from the dead who's been dead for three days. Three minutes with one of them. Zip, zip. I got that. Three days. It doesn't happen. I'm not going to see it happen in my lifetime and you're not going to see it happen in your lifetime because that is evidence of the power of God. And so, so Paul's saying, yes, Jesus was a weakling too, in a sense. He was crucified in weakness, but he's raised by the power of God. Paul's preaching is by the power of God. Paul may be a weakling. Maybe Paul can't bench press what the super apostles were. Maybe Paul does come across a bit wimpish. But Paul is not anything more than the vessel. The power of God is what's at work in Paul. And the weakling of Paul is aligned with Christ being crucified in weakness. But he preaches a resurrected Jesus. And that's a power of God. And it's the power of God that Paul's proclaiming. And that's what Paul will come in need be. We also, he says, are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. So examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't you realize this about yourselves? Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test. And so he says, that's why I'm coming again. And if we go back to the PowerPoint, that's it. And he says, you've got a choice. And I, uh, I put with this passage a number of other passages about choice. I gave you the story, the reading in Second Chronicles 35. This is a great reading for choice. In Second Chronicles 35, Josiah keeps the Passover. Now, Josiah was a good king in Judah. And the, the law had been forgotten. The law had been, look, you, you read, I'm always stunned to read scholars who write on the history of Israel. 
because many scholars who write on the history of Israel write on it based upon a review of other, other scholars' writings and write on it based upon a review of archaeological interpretation. And the amazing thing is, because so many of these scholars aren't believers in Scripture, it's just the area of fascination for their study. And they're marvelous scholars who come up with marvelous ideas and who come up with very challenging things that need to be discussed and thought about. But one of the things that amazes me is how few of them evidently really spend much time reading the Bible. William Deaver's a marvelous scholar. He's now retired, but he still writes, he still speaks. And he's written this, one of his profound books that I read a number of years ago on Yahweh had a wife. And he talks about undermining the biblical view. And he says, you know, people don't, who read the Bible, people of the word don't understand. And, and Deaver grew up in a Methodist household. But he, he talks about the, the, the evangelicals who might read the Old Testament and don't understand archaeology has shown that Israel actually thought that God had a wife. Yahweh had Asherah. He had, I'm sitting there, I'm reading a book thinking, well, I know you're a phenomenal archaeologist, and I know you're an outstanding teacher, and I know you're a leader in the field, but have you read the Old Testament? Because it says all the time these people were worshiping idols. And they're always trying to, to build up Asherah poles, which are being torn down. And when I read the Old Testament, a bunch of those Israelites thought God had a wife. And that's one of the things the prophets rail at. So Josiah comes into the scene, and, and for the first time in generations, they actually find a copy of, of the law of Moses in the temple, buried away while they're cleaning out. And they read it, and they say, wow, we have never done this. Who ever even heard of the Passover? This is new. And so they start doing it. But if you look at the story, the one verb or... or, or uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the verb that I hope jumped out at you as you were reading this passage, if you were reading along. Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the month. He appointed the priests to their offices. He encouraged them in the service of the house of Yahweh. And he said to the Levites who taught all Israel who were holy to the house of Yahweh, put the holy ark in the house, Solomon, the son of David, King of Israel built. You need not carry it on your shoulders. Now serve Yahweh your God and his people Israel. Then look at verse 4. Prepare yourselves according to your father's houses by divisions. And standing in the holy place, look at verse 6. He says, slaughter the Passover lamb, consecrate yourselves and prepare... For your brothers. Look at verse 10 and 11. When the services had been pre prepared for. The priests stood in their place. And the Levites in their divisions according to the king's command. And they slaughtered the Passover lamb. And the priests threw the blood they received from them. While the Levites flayed the sacrifices. You can keep on reading. You get to verse 16. So all, let's get it up there. So all the service of Yahweh was prepared that day to keep the Passover. 
and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord, according to the command of King Josiah. After this, what happens? Verse 20. After this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho, goes up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates. Josiah goes out to meet him. Prepared, prepared, prepared. Kun in the Hebrew. Prepared, 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 prepared. And that's what Paul's telling the Corinthians to do. Prepare. But don't simply prepare for Paul. You're preparing for the Lord. If what we're about is not simply a rotary club, if what we're about is not simply a nice devotion, is not simply a way to edify our minds, if what we're about is truly a conviction that there is a God who truly cares about us, who truly loves us enough, to offer a redemption to us through the blood of Jesus, resurrected with a promise of eternal life, if that's for real, then we need to prepare to live like it's for real. If you're at a place in your life where you don't know if it's real, then you don't need to play the game. But you do need to figure it out because it's the most important issue there can be. Which story is for real? Is this world just a dirt clot in outer space? Or is there a meaning and a purpose? If there's a meaning and a purpose, what is it? Is it the Christian meaning and purpose or is it one of the meanings and purposes offered by these other philosophies and groups? If it is a Christian meaning and purpose, then we need to be prepared and we need to live like it. And that's the point of that day, or those two days, actually. All right, let's keep going. We've got a couple more days. Um, if we get back to it, so we talked about, whoops, each person's choices. We compared the, the, the koinonia of Paul's genuine concern. And we talked about how each person's got choices and we need to live deliberately. We need to live thoughtfully. Okay, there's this really bizarre TV show that Becky and I, we don't have a lot of time to watch TV. But occasionally we'll, we'll watch something. A couple of shows we TiVo. Now, if you've not heard of this show, when I tell you the title, you're going to think, Oh! <gasps> We need to go to a different Sunday school class. Mark and Becky are into porn. This is not pornographic. It just sounds like it. Have you seen the TV show Naked and Afraid? On the Discovery Channel. Okay, come on. Naked and Afraid. They take these people and they put them no clothes. And they fuzz out all of that. That's not the point of the show. And they put them in these places and each one's allowed to take one tool, like a machete or a fire starter. And they have to live 21 days out like in the Amazon jungle or or in the deserts of the Kalahari or something like that. It's just really bizarre. But I'm telling you, you make choices. And one of the big choices they have to make is, what would you take? If you could take one tool, usually it's a machete, usually it's a fire starter. But I did see one episode where the guy took a roll of duct tape. 
And I think he may have been the smartest one. First thing he did is make clothes for him. Second thing he did is he used it to make a waterproof cup. I mean, that's like the tool that is like, I don't know, you know, pretty good. But everybody's got a choice to make. And we live deliberately. And you make these deliberate, thoughtful choices in how you're going to live your life. And I got to tell you something. Your choices have consequences. What I teach my children, what one day I hope to, to share with my grandchildren, what I teach anybody, is when you're very, very young, you don't have many choices to make that have very profound consequences. Your parents hedge you in and they protect you. But the older you get, the choices you make have more and more profound consequences. If you are old enough to drive a car, whether or not you drink and drive can radically change your history and that of everybody else on the road. You, the, 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 the dynamics. So you get these choices. All right, I, I've started preaching. All right, let's keep going. So now, if we return to Acts at this point, and we go back to where Paul was, Paul, on the map, was writing from Ephesus, where he started this lesson. He's sending it over to the church at Corinth. Then as Paul's writing 2 Corinthians, he kind of tours around and goes up through Macedonia, eventually goes to Corinth, and then starts heading to Jerusalem, as Pastor David was preaching on this morning. As he's headed to Jerusalem, let's see, there it is, Jerusalem. As he's headed to Jerusalem, Paul stops, but he doesn't want to go into Ephesus. Paul spent three years at Ephesus. He knows if he goes in, he won't get to Jerusalem in time. And he's on mission. He's going to Jerusalem. So he puts in at a port city called Miletus, which is right on the mouth of the Meander River. And, and at, which by the way, just goes back and forth and back and forth and silts up and is silted up over the, the centuries. So it's no longer even a port area right now. But that's where we get the word meander from. Because the river, the Meander River, goes like this, back and forth. Anyway, this is, uh, 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 whoops, here we go. Here's one of the ruins from Miletus, where Paul was. And it's here, Paul tells, it's about 30 miles from Ephesus, and he says to the elders of the church at Ephesus, would you come meet me in Miletus? Because I don't think I'm ever going to see you again. And I've got some things I want to tell you. And scholars call it Paul's tearful goodbye. And Paul's tearful goodbye is one that we read about in Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. And this is right before Paul gets to uh, Caesarea, where uh, Pastor Fleming was preaching from this morning. And it's part of the text that Pastor Fleming referred back to. But if we look to it, um, Acts chapter 20, verses 17, we get Paul's tearful goodbye. Let's go to the Elmo. Now, from Miletus, let's see. Oops, there we go. Now, from Miletus, Paul is the he here. Paul sent to the elders. He sent to Ephesus. He called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said, "You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews." 
how I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything profitable, teaching you in public from house to house, testifying to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God, of faith in our Lord Jesus. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. I don't account my life of any value. It's not precious to me. I only want to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. You know, there's so much debate among scholars about... um, how reliable are the Gospels? You know, how reliable is the Gospel story of Jesus? And scholars debate it because so many scholars, again, they don't write from a basis of faith. They write from a basis of scholasticism. Not that those two are incompatible. But for some, they write from a place of, of skepticism to faith. And so they discount those things that are of faith and, and, and take on an academic exercise from there. And it makes it a, a difficult thing to read the Gospels in an academic sense and figure out where you land and what you land on. And, and don't get me wrong, we've taught on it in here. I believe in the integrity of those Gospels firmly, absolutely firmly, and not out of blindness, but out of study. But I'll tell you what, all the scholars agree Paul was Paul. And these are Pauline authentic type words and actions and deeds. We have authentic letters of Paul. And that guy is either an absolute nut job or he knew the Lord. Something really happened to him on Damascus Road. He truly experienced. You don't find people who just walk around acting this way. His, he, he doesn't just say the words. He means it. I don't care about my own life. He says it this way. I added the Philippians passage. It's better for me to go to glory, to die and be with God. It's just better for you if I stay around. So God's got me sticking around. And Paul wasn't afraid to die. He had absolutely no fear. He was ready. Because he knew, as he said to Timothy, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed to him. So Paul just says, look, the thing is, he says, I just know I'm not going to see you again. So I want you to pay careful attention to yourselves. I want you to pay careful attention to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I want you to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among yourselves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw disciples away. 
Be alert. Remember, for three years, I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. I commend you to God. I commend you to the word of his grace. It's able to build you up, able to give you the inheritance among all those who've sanctified. At the end, when Paul said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. There was a lot of weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he'd spoken that he wouldn't see their face again. And they went with him to the ship and Paul sailed off. Scholars call it Paul's tearful goodbye. I put with it Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, a time to be joyful, a time to dance, and a time to cease from dancing. Paul's headed to Jerusalem, and he knows what awaits him to some degree, but not fully. But he's okay with that. It's that Pastor Fleming description. Click, 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 click. When you're on that roller coaster, as you're getting up, and that ride's about to really get interesting. And that's where Paul was. Guys, that's, that's where I, I want to be. I, I, that's where I want to be. That's my, my prayer. Okay, so with that, here are our key takeaways. Let's go uh, to lunch and then back to work. Uh, <laughs> I'm working on koinonia. There are people in my circle I want to be close to. Steve and I are in constant prayer about how can we help Touch the lives of people. How can we help be a part of that in an intimate way? I'm also living deliberately. I'm making deliberate choices. I'm 53 years old. I'll turn 54 soon. And and in the midst of all of that, I don't know how many days God has for me on this earth. But I don't want a day. I don't want an hour to go by. That I'm not making deliberate choices. I want to live deliberately. And I want those choices to be made right. When Pastor David this morning was going over this litany. Here's what we do know God wants you to do. And we know this, we know this, we know this. I'm sitting there going, go slower, go slower. I need to absorb this. I want to live deliberately. And as I do it, I'm wanting to do it in God's path. I would love to have that heart of Paul. Not that heart simply, but that mind of Paul. That blessed assurance of Paul. I would love to be able to say, I am going to follow God wherever He leads me. Whatever the cost. That radical discipleship is what I want in my life. And I hope you'll join me in that. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we come before you in the midst of everybody praying together right now. Father, we are all at an individual place somewhere in connection to you as a reference point. Some nearer, some further, some on the same plane, others in a different dimension. But with you as a reference point, Lord, we all live somewhere around you. 
it is my prayer that you would all draw us closer to you as a reference point. And as we all, from our various walks of life, draw closer to you, that we'll experience drawing closer to each other. And that that will fuel the acceleration of our growth before you in deliberate living, Father. Seeking your will at all costs in our life with a sole focus to be where you want us to be doing what you want us to do to the glory of your kingdom and to the performance of your will, that your will might be done in our lives on earth as it is in heaven. This is our prayer through the powerful, resurrected Jesus Christ. Amen.